Yes, we are live here from Des Moines, Iowa. This is Ed Fallon, your host, my co-host today, uh, Dr. Charles Goldman. And we're broadcasting, of course, from Des Moines, Iowa, the cultural and culinary crossroads of America. Also, um, a place that has had some oh, pretty awful weather lately, but uh, things are looking up now. We're looking actually at returning to only 10 degrees below the uh, normal high for this mm. time of the year. And the sun has returned. And the sun, we, what, is that what that is up in the sky? <laughs> I saw this big... Big fiery looking object, and I didn't know what it was. Oh, it's I thought it was like I have a camera for Sherry to see what she's wearing. I thought it was like <laughs> I thought it was like a street lamp that got like left on. Yeah. Well, anyway, uh, good to be here, folks. Good to have you with us. Um, we will be uh, talking later in the program with uh, with uh, Reverend Billy. Uh, Reverend Billy is uh, with the uh, Church of Stop Shopping, and he's been helping to lead a campaign against the uh, the use of uh, GMO crops. Uh, and uh, specifically, that's kind of focused on the uh, World Food Prize, which, of course, is um, uh, coming up here soon in Des Moines. It's yep. one of those uh, world events that happen here in Des Moines, then the Iowa caucuses and a few other ridiculous things. And, but, the, and the International Airport. And the Des Moines International Airport also happens here in Des Moines, right? So we'll also be talking about uh, um, about the um, the uh, kind of try to sort out the truth of the – um, the crisis in the Mideast and the whole issue of anti-Semitism. That should be interesting. We're talking to the Reverend, Reverend Billy about that? No, no, we're talking, <laughs> we're talking with, a, with a Reverend Rabbi about that. Anyway, okay. but, um, but uh, first we're going to talk about, um, well, let's see, we can go two different places, uh, Charles. We can start off with a conversation about income inequality, or we can analyze the Hubble-Reynolds debate. Well, What's your go, pleasure? Go with the latter. Where do you want to start? The Hubble-Reynolds debate? Sure. So, and it really should, it should have been the Hubble-Reynolds-Porter debate. There is no fair reason why the Register, and it was a KCCI, KCCI TV, mm-hmm. excluded one of three legitimate, legal, established parties, even though that party doesn't poll as much as the other two parties. Well, what, what a surprise. I mean, when you're <laughs> unable to participate yeah, in yeah, the debate. Yeah, yeah. It's like self-fulfilling. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I mean, the, I mean, Porter is polling at 7%. Mm-hmm. And uh, again, whether you're supporting him or someone else, fairness should say that hey, you know, um, this guy, his party's his party is uh, has ballot access. He's on the ballot. You know, he's polling way more than most third party candidates ever poll, and yet they're going to exclude him from the debate. Right. Right. So, well, yeah. <laughs> and, and I know you want Ralph Nader on the. Uh, no, I, I, I think I'm a, I'm a huge Ralph Nader fan when it comes to uh, consumer protection. Um. Not so much as a political candidate. But. Well, I mean, I, I did listen and watch the uh, entire debate. Um, my view, I don't know what your view of it is, but I thought it was the usual insipid. Oh, it, uh, was, it was a sleeper. Sort of it was pre, a sleeper. You know, pre-programmed. I'm not answering the question. Let me tell you a story about how yeah. much I love Iowa. I, I could. <laughs> how many generations I've been here? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, I, I – I, was not surprised that Governor Reynolds, you know, you can see from her commercials that her her main goal is to uh, number one speak about her roots in Iowa and coming from poverty or relative poverty compared to Hubble. Uh, so therefore, she has you know she has uh, more empathy with the uh, the Iowa you know the, the general Iowa person. Um, and then, of course, to say that her policies have been the reason for unemployment being low in the state. Um, and then, unfortunately, there were parts of it which, you know, she started going off on how, how great the tax cut has been, yeah, you know, the federal tax cut, which, of course, is nonsense. That's hard, that's hard to defend that logically right. and empirically. I mean, the, the evidence says something very different than the narrative she's pre- presenting. Well, she, she, she's just you know, kowtowing to the Republican line about it. Yeah. Um, I, I, I said line, not lying, but they are <laughs> lying about it. Um, and, uh, a politician lying? <laughs> Has that ever happened? And, you know, but the, the thing that I, I don't understand is Hubble never really asked her to link what her policies have done to generate this – Low unemployment, and the register never posed such a question. Correct. Um, so, you know, you get a lot of discussion of issues in which there's no linkage. Much of what's going on is simply 
coincidence than serendipity. Right. It has nothing yeah. to do directly with the policies because it's just like the president claiming that all of the economic recovery is on him. He's been in office for less than two years. Yeah. Um, I mean, every president makes some claim as to yeah, except for Obama, who managed to miss every opportunity to take credit mean, for what he did. You mean he was being honest, right? <laughs> because the, I'm sorry, a president or a governor really doesn't um, control the economy. You can you can help tweak it for sure. You can help send signals that direct certain certain innovations, certain developments. But yeah, to to take to take claim for the success of one or to blame the collapse of, a, of economic conditions on your predecessor, it's all pretty disingenuous. Yeah. And, and to me, Hubble missed multiple opportunities and, and came off, I thought, in some areas seeming just as disingenuous. I mean, she, uh, Governor Reynolds spoke about how employment is helped so much by right to work. Right. That's, that is an opportunity. And, you know, so, so we'll talk about it again in the next segment for a Democrat to say – Right to work may decrease unemployment, but all it does is it's a race to the bottom in terms of wages and benefits. Right. And if it, the other linkage is to make the you know the normal the the middle class person the working class person aware that it makes no difference if you make two percent more in wages, it's all being soaked up by increasing health care costs which are being generated by the Republicans' policies to get rid of any competitive system. And going back to this imaginary market health care system we used to have, in which if you had acne as a teenager and who didn't, that's a pre-existing condition. <laughs> and so if you ended up you know, getting treated for melanoma, the insurance company would come back to you and say, well, you had acne. And you didn't tell us that on your application. What? They, wait, wait, wait. They, you could do that? That's why that that was, the, that was the business model. First of all, the business model was the, the, the really, premiums that, were so that high. It, if you did not report these – I mean, I'm, I'm exaggerating with that. you did not report zits. No. But what? things like asthma wouldn't okay. be oftentimes reported. And okay. they would literally come back to the subscriber and say, you lied to us on your application and you had this pre-existing condition. That was the business model, which was to basically not pay. And the other business model was, of course, to generate premiums that nobody with pre-existing condition would ever be able to take. Right. And so what was the answer to that? So if you couldn't pay for expensive private health care insurance, you went into the high-risk pool that your state ran. Okay, so, 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 so back to Hubble and – Yeah, so Hubble and, misses I mean, all the – I mean, Hubble's commercials – I mean, how, how do you feel he did on the Medicaid? I mean, I think Medicaid is probably the, – the mismanagement of Medicaid by privatizing it is yeah, probably he, the pivotal he, issue in this campaign. I agree. But he, again, is not able to really – hammer in on what's it costing the state to do this and what's it costing in terms of uh, being a disincentive to expand hospital beds or to uh, have more physicians come into this state because you're not going to get paid. Yeah. You know, and the, the waits are becoming longer for treatment based on the fact that people know that the Medicaid insurers who are going to change every six months are not getting paid. And how is it – we're supposed to be dealing with a private corporation, Right. And a private corporation comes in and gives you an actuarial estimate and says, this is how much we think it's going to cost. And six months later, they come back in and say, well, we were wrong. We want more money. Tough luck. <laughs> yeah. Whatever happened but to But they contracts? get away with it. They, they get, get away, away with it. it. Right. But, I mean, yeah. and Hubble – Haven't they gotten away with it more than once? Of course. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and, and, and this has only been going on for, what, for three years but now? But look at his commercials. Hubble's commercials are about mental health. I mean, I understand that's, that's something important, important to him. Yes. It's important to him. It's well, important to a modicum of islands, but it's not going to resonate with most people. Has he done any commercials on Medicaid? Mm, I mean, he yes, but without really getting to the heart of yeah. what's Reynolds' involvement in it. But, I mean, more, and more people, honestly, more people watch those commercials <coughs> than probably watch this debate by quite a long shot. I agree. I, I don't even know what the polling is in terms of, of how, how many people watch the debate, but I don't think it was that high. No. And I, even, and I imagine that most of the people watching it are already fairly entrenched in their partisan universe and uninclined to really be swayed one way or the other. Again, well, but then, but then he took no chances. So they asked him about what would you do with the um, revenue from legalized gambling, and he said, "I put in a separate dedicated fund with something specific that it would go towards." Then they asked Hubble, <laughs> "Well, are you in favor of legalizing sports gambling?" And his answer should have been absolutely yes. I mean, it's been carried on illegally anyway, of course. I mean, and in fact, it's a better deal to just gamble on well, sports than it is to run a lottery and try to win a lottery. So instead of saying yes, he didn't answer it. He started to tell a story about how he wants to do things that are good for Iowans. Well, he was afraid of losing the evangelical Christian vote. 
which of course is so hypocritical anyway. I mean, I used to live up in Minnesota, and the evangelical Christians would have their, you know, motorhomes parked outside of the various, you know, Native American casinos in northern Minnesota. On Sunday, they would hold you know, their prayer session, whatever they were going to do, and then they would go to the gamble. I don't know, but most evangelical Christians I know are pretty anti-gambling. Oh, but I, but, but that's not a block I, that's going to vote I think that's what anyhow. they say. Oh, no, I think it's true, actually. And it, but that's not a block that's going to vote with Hubble. But right. I, I mean, what bothered me the most was the. I mean, I mean it seemed like the uh, the uh, the debate moderators and their their you know the corporations behind them, Gannett mm-hmm. and and KCCI, had a, a very narrow, specific agenda they wanted to focus on, to the exclusion of a lot of things that are really important to a lot of people and a lot of and very important to our, our Earth, our planet, our community. Uh, oh well. They weren't going to discuss climate change. Yet. They didn't dis- discuss yeah, well, climate change in the national debates for the presidency yeah, know, two years ago. Yeah. And they that, did that, give – but there were openings. There were openings about talking about sure. stand your ground. There was uh, opportunities to talk about what are you going to do about the water quality in this state and yeah. the runoff into the Mississippi. Again, both of them avoided that. Yeah. Um, the, you know, the gambling issue. Just say what you're going to do. Yeah. You know, and, and, and I would hammer Governor Reynolds on do you really think that you're going to get young people to come to a state – which believes that fetal life begins at the heartbeat? I'm sorry. That's a disincentive yeah. for economic you know, expansion in this state. It is, but it might not be uh, an, an influential determinant in the election. I don't know. Uh, I mean, I think it's really hard to say how it's going to go, but I would not be surprised to see Porter do even better than 7% at the polls. I, I think it's up for grabs in terms of who's going to win the election. Well, um, yeah, I mean, it's a toss-up I, at this point. I, I, don't, I think the debate was about as lackluster as a debate can get. Uh, <laughs> it yeah. seems like the more the more the moderators try to script the debate, uh, the candidates will comply, and the more meaningless the debate becomes. But, hey, we got to go to a break. Um, speak, and, and again, I know one of the issues in the Hubble Reynolds uh, debate is I'm a poor girl, and he's a rich guy. <laughs> right. And uh, when we come back, we're going to talk about the emerging class warfare, or the renewed class warfare, or whether or not there should be. Class Warfare. We'll be back in a minute, folks, on the Fallon Gateway Forum. Market and Cafe is your locally owned source for specialty groceries. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan-baked goods, organic produce, specialty cheeses, and hand-selected wines and craft beer. Visit the Lively Cafe for breakfast, lunch, and dinner seven days a week. Gateway Market is centrally located on the corner of Martin Luther King Jr. Parkway and Woodland Avenue. Stop by or visit www.gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market. Good food, great community. Times are tough, and most people are just trying to make their cars last a little bit longer. That's why you should know about Sargent's Garage in Des Moines. You can trust Sargent's to make the right diagnosis and give you a fair price. Whether it's a routine oil change or a major repair, Sargent's always does outstanding work. So don't give up on that old car just yet. Call Sargent's Garage at 246-8149. That's 246-8149. Community CPA and Associates, with locations in Des Moines and Coralville, is the perfect place to go for all of your tax and accounting needs. Community CPA offers a wide array of services, from tax planning to business IT solutions. Call Community CPA today at 515-288-3188 or visit www.communitycpa.com for more information. Hi folks, it's Ed Fallon reminding you that you can eat Iowa-grown food all winter long at Hawk Restaurant in Des Moines East Village. Over 90% of the food served at Hawk comes from Iowa farms and their dishes are amazing. I once brought a guy there from New York and he was blown away by the experience. He said it was like any fine dining you'd enjoy in Greenwich Village, but at one-fourth the price. So don't go all the way to, to New York City. When you can enjoy gourmet dining prepared with Iowa-grown food at Hawk Restaurant in Des Moines East Village. Ritual Cafe is located at 13th and Locust in beautiful downtown Des Moines. It's a great place for coffee, tea, smoothies, and a full vegetarian menu. Ritual Cafe also features music on the weekends. For more information, call Ritual Cafe at 515-288-4872. That's 515-288-4872. 
When it's time to entertain, think of Gateway Market to handle all the details. Gateway offers a wide variety of stress-free options like our cut-to-order cheese and charcuterie and delicious olive bar and a wide variety of chef-prepared dips and spreads. Or let our catering team take care of the entire event, right down to the wine and beer pairings. Our expert floral designers can even customize perfect centerpieces. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more information. Gateway Market. Good food, great entertaining. All right, folks, welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Uh, you know, some would argue that uh, politicians, activists, social commentators should never engage in class warfare because that divides us as a country. Uh, <laughs> as opposed to what's going on yeah, now. That's right. Yeah, the other <laughs> argument is uh, that the, uh, the upper crust have done a very good job at engaging in class warfare and uh, – and mm-hmm. most of us are on the losing end of that battle. Charles, what's your thought on the class warfare division? Well, I think that the Republicans have always played the Democrats. In fact, if you remember back to President Obama making a statement which was actually absolutely true, in which he said every person in this country, small business, big business, owes a debt to the commons for the infrastructure and the, uh, the fact that there's federal, federal subsidies – to um, the infrastructure that allows these businesses to be successful. Uh, Businesses like oil and gas that were uh, dragging huge amounts of oil all over the world through uh, the Straits of Hormuz out of the Middle East owe us money for the fact that basically they have a protection racket, which is the U.S. Navy. And, of course, the Republicans went crazy when Obama said that. Do you remember their response? Because that – Oh, I, yeah. I mean, it was the usual I mean, Republican that's, that's response. A, that's the a, president that's, is playing class warfare. Yeah. This is, you know, it, it, this is like the Thomas Franks book, you know, what's, what's the matter with Kansas? Why do people consistently vote their, against their economic interests? It's absolutely clear that the system is completely rigged, to use the president's favorite word, towards the rich. And what puts that in striking relief are the two columns or the, the two articles. The, the big one, of course, was the expose of Daddy Fred and son Donald and the tax scams that they've been running for decades, which hopefully the president will pay for one of these days, either with either in this jail life time or the or, next life. Well, I think he's going to pay with money. Um, you think, really, you think so? Yes. Really? Yeah, because – Starting when? Well, that, the question is whether it's going to be during or after his you know, tenure. But, the, but nevertheless, let's not get into that. We know from the Times article, first of all, there's nothing new there in many ways. The Village Voice had been publishing articles. David K. Johnson been publishing books pointing out the scam that the Trump empire is. I mean, I think the Times article was meticulously well-researched mm-hmm. showing how they did it. Now there's a second article this weekend in the Times talking about – the, the hidden genius, Jared Kushner. Um, is, that a, that, is that a bit of a stretch? Well, that's what uh, <laughs> that's uh, what our UN ambassador, as she was on her way out, uh, Mickey Haley? Haley said that he was a hidden gem in the administration. Did she said gem or genius? Genius. She actually said genius. Oh. So <laughs> what this article pointed out is that the Kushner empire is built on what probably is legal use of depreciation on their properties. Right. Um, but let's 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 look at how your house gets handled if you own one, right? If I own one, right? <laughs> and how the accelerated depreciation and and wild west of depreciation in the real estate business, which is unique to the real estate business, nobody else gets to do what real estate investors get to do. They're able to depreciate money that isn't even theirs. In other words, in some of these properties, they were showing losses against depreciation, which was based on money that Kushner didn't even, ha- didn't even have. He had borrowed. That's not allowed in any other industry. You cannot depreciate against right. money you've borrowed. But that's how it works. You get 100% depreciation whether you put the money in or not if you're listed as the owner of the property. That then gives you what looks like a negative a, 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 a loss for that year, which you then put against right. your income, so you pay nothing. And this is one of a thousand or two thousand. Who knows how many examples of how the uh, 
poor and the middle class have been played right. by the political Bec- the oligarchy and that the, have benefited and from they this. have been played because what the Demo- what the republicans have been able to do has been to say look over here here's immigrants yeah. Being an anti-immigrant has always worked in the United States. Let's, let's be clear. This yeah. is not a new thing in this country. Right. We, this we, goes we, back to, to the, the uh, 1920s well, Irish, and the Harding yeah, administration. Yeah, the, the Irish need not apply. And the Coolidge yes. administration. Right. This no. is not new. Anti-immigration sentiment goes back actually even further. To the 1800s. To the 1800s. Yeah. But yeah. really what we're seeing now is a replay of the 1920s, almost exactly a replay of the 1920s. Economic inequality that's masked by huge amounts of credit and the seeming high life of those people like you know the reality show people. Um, but it's all smoke and mirrors. So the public can say, look over here. Um, these people are hurting you. They're driving down your wages. And on the other, and also Democrats want to have abortion on demand for everybody. <laughs> and they, they bring in the culture issues. And yeah. we don't like gay people and we don't like you know these people. And, and so they're able to convince people who are totally being screwed by the Republican economic policies to vote for them on the basis of social issues. Because – the Democrats have lost their effectiveness in highlighting the economic issues, which is that the Republican scheme and all these things that are in the tax code are all about enriching other people except for the working people. And the Democrats have somewhat undercut that message because they become handmaidens to Wall Street too. Right. So is that that the reason why Democrats, again, Bernie Sanders being a notable, not the only, but being the most uh, prominent exception, but is is that the reason why Democrats – fail to call out the Republican charade that that has led the way on class warfare because they themselves have benefited from it? Is that the primary reason? Or would you say there's some other uh, motivation? No, I think the part, the Democratic Party got lost, you know, and that they, they moved to the center. Whatever try, that, what does whatever, that mean? Well, meaning they <laughs> want to look like sort of Republican light, you know, and they began to take huge amounts of money from corporate entities that began to control the message. Yeah. And that's why this whole generation, I agree with um, you know, a lot of the progressive Democrats, they, this whole generation of leaders needs to be you know, expelled. And it isn't to say that Nancy Pelosi was not and is not an amazingly effective political actor in Washington. But the problem is she represents a generation of centrism and the DLC and the Clintons, this is, you know, this is the gift of the Clintons yeah. that never stops giving. Yeah, yeah, um, well, yeah and it's, it's, it's amazing because – uh, a majority of Democrats keep passing it along. Right. It's like, hey, we've got this. Uh, but you see, look, 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 look at the Kavanaugh administration. Look at the Kavanaugh nomination. So the Republicans have been able to play Kavanaugh as some great jurist who's going to help all these people who are now so enraged that um, they tried to deny this good man a place on the Supreme Court. Well, wait and see what a 5-4 Republican majority does to your rights as a worker. Wait and see what happens in terms of corporate uh, control, basically, with of this money country. and politics. Yeah, yeah there's, no, there's no chance of Citizens right. United being revisited with this court. No, I mean, just you, and just, not just now, but for a long time. That's see, and see again, the Democrats got lost in all these allegations about harassment, hmm. right? What they should have been hammering on. It was important, but right. they should have been hammering on. The fact that a 5-4 Republican majority on the Supreme Court is going to eviscerate what's left right, but, but of the that, reforms that, that, of the 60s. I mean, that, was, that didn't matter. This was going to happen. I mean, Republicans hold all but the then cards they could, on but this. But that's, that's right. It was going to happen anyway. But the point would have been to then point out that people like Murkowski and people like Susan Collins, these supposedly moderate Republicans, are part of a total economic scam yeah, why did they, that's why, being played on why, the middle class. Why, why did they – what's your take? If you could get inside their head and figure this out, why did they vote for – vote to – to confirm Kavanaugh. Who? Uh, Collins, Murkowski, Flake, some of these other Republicans that have at least expressed some independence and, and you know, uh, an ability to think outside the box in the past. Um, I would say for the most part because they lose influence within the party and in, within the Senate. Why if, does Flake care? And, and well, the, I agree. Why did Flake care? Because he's a coward. Flake's yeah. a coward. And with the Senate, I mean, the Senate may not go Democrat in the, uh, it's in the not. midterm election. It's not going Democrat. But it will at some point. And so, you know, why um, you know, I, I don't know. It, it just seems like there's not much to be gained by by continuing to eat all the uh, all the arguments that your party is feeding you. When deep down inside, you know something's wrong. You, right. you know this doesn't add up. You know you're voting for uh, a very um, you know, questionable future for the highest court in the land. No, I, I mean, agree. I, I don't. I don't know. If there's ever an example where the court has been so partisan. 
either Democratic or Republican. Well, the Republicans will say that the 60s court was the same way, although it's really kind of strange because a lot of those justices during the 60s came to that position. From Eisenhower. Right. Yeah. But they didn't come to the court so locked into. Right. We're gonna, the point is that there are so many cases that you know how all five of these justices are going to vote. The only, the only check on this court may be the fact that Roberts is the chief justice and he, it's his reputation – Long term, that will be remembered. No one's going to remember Clarence Thomas. You know, um, no one's going to remember uh, Sam Alito. They probably will. No. <laughs> Thomas to some extent. But yeah, Roberts. It's the uh, Roberts Court, and, yeah. and does he really want to lead a devolving of the American economy back to the rules of the 1800s? Yeah. Because that's what they want. They really do want to go back to that, where yeah. the employer, you as a, this is this is the Republican economic philosophy. You as a worker have the right to negotiate your terms of yeah. employment. And, and back to your main point, Democrats have let this happen. That's correct. Yeah. Lar- by and large, Democrats have let this happen. Mm-hmm. And Democrats who push back against it find uh, find themselves ostracized uh, in various ways. And in the case of Bernie Sanders, um, I mean, he's developed such a powerful base that he is still a very viable and prominent voice. Uh, arguably, some, some would say the, the, the leading voice in the Democratic Party. Um, well, he's not in the Democratic Party. Well, <laughs> well I, 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 and I stand, I stand by what I said, ironically, right. uh, despite mm-hmm. that. But yeah, he, um, you know, he he is in many people's way, minds the, the the leading the leading opposition voice to what's going on with the Republican Congress and presidency. And I, I would say that the last the last thing on this issue is I am more and more convinced that Bernie Sanders, despite having gone down to Cuba and taking pictures with Castro, would have won the presidency, whereas Hillary Clinton... Oh, yeah. I I think there's a lot of evidence to that fact. But, Mm -hmm. of course, the DLC and the Pelosi's of the world will never let that out. They'll never let that get any any kind of conversation because that would uh, would expose the lie that what the uh, the DLC has been doing for the past 30 years makes any sense at all. Right. I agree. Hey, so we got to take a short break. When we come back, uh, Reverend Billy's going to join us. We're going to talk about the World Food Prize here on the Fallon Forum. Welcome back to the uh, Fallon Forum. This is Ed Fallon, your host, uh, with uh, Dr. Charles Goldman cluttering up the studio with me today. <laughs> uh, you get a break from me here for a couple weeks after oh. this. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah, we'll see what that does to ratings. <laughs> you have to let me know. <laughs> I may All be right. demoted to a calling guest. <laughs> <laughs> well, we may or may not take your call. <laughs> All right, so... Uh, so later in the program, we're going to talk about uh, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, uh, specifically regarding the issue of anti-Semitism, with a rabbi who has been uh, uh, tracking this conversation closely. But uh, first, we're going to go to our phone and welcome from uh, New York City, uh, Reverend Billy. Uh, Reverend Billy's coming to Des Moines soon to uh, join the effort to call out the World Food Prize for being more focused on... GMO agriculture and less so on sustainable ag. Uh, Reverend Billy, welcome to the show. Are you there? So well, have you ever attended one of Reverend Billy's events? I have, actually, yes. And how, how, how well attended are they usually? Uh, it depends on the event, but uh, there were 400,000 people uh, in, in New York City for one of his events when he was marching in the uh, climate play, climate uh, the, uh, the climate march. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, um, yeah, I, I'm not sure what happened there, but uh, Bill, call back if you can. Anyway, um, the uh, World Food Prize has come under a lot of criticism in recent years. It's um, it's been labeled as a primarily a primarily a, a, a conduit for praising uh, big ag, for praising uh, those who use intensive chemical production, that who those who use uh, GMO crops in order to um, in order to uh, uh, grow food, and um, also an agenda that tends to be not so much in favor of small farms. And you know, I, I, uh, Ken Quinn is the director of the World Food Prize, and he's been at that job for a long time. And I, I know Ken very well. I've had him on my program a couple times. I have, I have a lot of respect for him. And I believe, you know, the World Food Prize will argue that um, 
that uh, they're doing their part to be balanced, that they do recognize the contributions of small uh, of, of, of uh, scientists who, who focus on trying to um, trying to help small farmers, uh, you know. But that that hasn't stopped uh, an ongoing wave of criticism, you know, coming at uh, coming at the uh, World Food Prize from both uh, those who are concerned about GMOs, uh, those who uh, see Monsanto now bear as uh, as dominating agricultural policy. Um, and those who uh, those who are concerned that uh, that that U.S. farm policy is uh, for you, uh, the U.S. is foreign farm policy is pretty much geared toward trying to create you know a monster agricultural system in other countries where what they really need is a focus on helping really small farmers. I mean, we're talking about just a few acres. Uh, uh, and how, how how those farmers can continue to make a living in a changing world, and so um, you know, I, I think uh, in, in recent years we've seen a significant protest at the um, at the uh, World Food Prize uh, event, and that's usually at the uh, Iowa State Capitol building, mm-hmm. and the, um, the, uh, the the focus has been to try to call out the. Uh, the, not just the the winners, the winners of the prize, but the uh, the uh, entity that is giving it out, and um, usually it involves somebody getting arrested. <laughs> Once Reverend Billy, and um, what an interesting sidebar to this was a couple of years ago there was a lawsuit because because candidate because uh, protesters weren't allowed to get anywhere near the state capitol, and so they sued and they won and they were awarded fifty grand because they were denied access to their First Amendment right to be close to where the event was actually happening. Mm-hmm. I think it would be important to, to clarify you know, the, the GMO issue, which is a lot of people focus on the issue of is it harmful to us to ingest GMO product. I would say scientifically probably not. But what GMO agriculture allows is it allows for chemical corporations to control the seeds that are used to – you know, grow the predominant staples in this country, and then linking those seeds to certain the use of certain herbicides and pesticides. Right. Yeah. Um, and those seeds, by the way, remember Monsanto is not an American corporation anymore. It's owned by Bayer. Yeah. It's owned by a German corporation, a German oh. multinational. Ach, yeah. Yeah. So talk about food security. We're so concerned about oil security and fuel, you know, and energy security. We, you know, probably seventy eight percent of the agriculture in this country is now controlled by right. a German corporation. Yeah. Well, uh, well, yeah. And an increasing amount of the production is going to export crops to China. The other thing that's important about the GMO issue is that what are, in, in the United States, what is the you know staple crops that are grown used for for the most part? Yeah, they're used to make ethanol, and they're used to feed animals, which you know as a climate change person is a huge problem. And um, it's going to be very hard to address agriculture's contribution to climate change yeah. without moving away from that fact. We literally are spending huge amounts of energy to grow crops to either burn in our cars or have animals eat so we can eat meat. Um, Says the vegan doctor. Well, I'm not saying, I'm not <laughs> saying that we, we're omnivores. We're meant to eat both plants and flesh. But the point is the amount of meat we eat in this country is unhealthy. It's unhealthy for the environment. It's unhealthy for the world's environment. Um, so I, I think that is the problem I find with GMOs. I know I know we've had people on before, Reverend Billy on before. I truly don't think GMOs are a risk directly by being consumed by humans. It's just an advanced form of what we were doing before, which was altering plants to have characteristics that we want, such as making tomatoes hard enough like a softball or a baseball so you can harvest them on the machine. Um, <laughs> you know, I just don't think that's personally dangerous yeah. to humans. Yeah. But I do think people need to understand that the whole agricultural setup in the United States is um, antithetical to good stewardship of the farming environment as well as good stewardship of the environment in general. And that you're not going to hear at the World Food Prize. Right. Hey, uh, we're going to take a short uh, break here to uh, thank some of the other business uh, sponsors that helped make this program possible. Thanks to uh, Ritual Cafe. 
at 13th Street between Locust and Grand in downtown Des Moines. Virtual Cafe is uh, noted for their fair trade coffee, fair trade tea, and their, so their, their vegetarian menu, which I believe is unique in the Des Moines metro. Thanks also to uh, Catering by Sid. Uh, Sid Cohn, the owner of Sid's Catering, uses as much fresh and uh, fresh local produce as possible in her arrangements, and uh, every one of her arrangements is custom-made. That's Catering by Sid, C-Y-D, Catering by Sid. Uh, thanks also to uh, Story County Veterinary Clinic. Story County Veterinary Clinic uh, is uh, run by Dr. Kim Holding, who has 30 years of experience treating critters large and small. Give her a shout, folks, at Story County Veterinary Clinic. And finally, thanks to uh, Gateway Marketing Cafe, located at 20th and Woodland in the uh, Sherman Hill neighborhood. Uh, that's my grocery store and also a great place for breakfast, lunch, and supper. And Gateway Marketing Market has a catering service as well. That's Gateway Market and Cafe. All right, uh, let's continue our conversation here. We're going to shift gears. I don't know what we were. Uh, I don't know why we weren't able to snag Reverend Billy on the phone there, but uh, we've got. Well, they um, did see a Saudi assassination team in his. <laughs> <laughs> I doubt that. I doubt that. But, uh, you know, uh, the ongoing conflict in uh, Israel-Palestine is uh, generating pretty strong sentiments uh, on both sides. And to discuss uh, anti-Semitism, the uh, reality and the myth, uh, is uh, Rabbi Brant Rosen. Hello, uh, Rabbi Rosen. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. Good, good to have you with us. And apparently this call works. This is good. We're not sure what was going on with the call from Reverend Billy. Uh, <laughs> so um, you're going to be in Des Moines, I believe, on Wednesday. Is this is correct? That is correct. Uh, Wednesday evening. Okay. And, of course, uh, you're in the middle of a very heated conversation. Uh, give us uh, your take on the issue of anti-Semitism and what's going on in Israel-Palestine these days. Well... The issue of anti-Semitism, I think, has has been given a, a new has been raised in a new kind of way. I suppose you could say. Um, last month, the Trump administration has announced that it would be uh, adopting a very controversial definition of anti-Semitism that's very vague and that many of us uh, believe will uh, really put a strong dampening effect on criticism of Israel, legitimate criticism of Israel. Uh, and you see this issue uh, being played out on college campuses around the country uh, where Palestine solidarity activists are under huge, uh, 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 there's a, a huge effort being made to, to quash their work. And who's, uh, and, who's, who's and, behind that effort? Uh, well, there is a very strong Israel lobby in this country, as you as you may know, right. um, and it is funded funded from many different quarters. It's funded by uh, the the groups like Stand with Us, uh, Christian Zionist groups like uh, Christians United for Israel, uh, uh, philanthropists like uh, Sheldon Adelson. Uh, and others who are, and, and the government of Israel, quite frankly, who are dedicating literally hundreds of millions of dollars toward combating uh, Palestine solidarity activism on college campuses. Uh, and now that the Trump administration is is throwing its weight behind this effort, it's it's very deeply troubling and concerning. And, and in what ways, other than establishing Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, what, in what ways is the uh, Trump administration throwing its weight behind this effort? So last month, uh, it was uh, announced that there was a case at Rutgers University uh, in which a Palestine solidarity activist, uh, Omar Barghouti, who uh, was visiting Rutgers campus and was sponsored by a uh, Middle East studies program there, uh, th there was an investigation, there was a complaint that was made against that program. Uh, and the Obama, then Obama administration looked into it and, and uh, decided that there was no validity uh, to that complaint. Uh, and that has been now reopened uh, by the Education Department, uh, specifically by uh, Kenneth Marcus, who's uh, the head of the uh, Office for Civil Rights in the Education Department. 
Uh, and he announced that he was going to, that the uh, education department was going to reopen the investigation and that was using this working definition of anti-Semitism uh, that uh, has been widely discredited. Uh, uh, that is so vague, it has wording that's so vague that um, it could really render any kind of criticism of Israel so what, as, quote-unquote, anti-Semitic. What definition are we working from? It is the State Department definition uh, that came out, I believe, in 2010 or so. Uh, and that was, it was developed from an earlier uh, European Union definition that was long since uh, abandoned, uh, but is still on the books in the State Department. Uh, and the 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 parts of it that are the most concerning are, are um there are parts of it that are very valid. Um, for instance, I'll read you from the from the actual definition: calling for aiding or justifying the killing or harming of Jews, often in the name of a race, radical ideology or extremist view of religion. So, of course, that is a, a, a classic definition of, of anti-Semitism and has been for time immemorial. But then it has a section that they call demonizing Israel. And of course, demonizing is uh, as a very subjective term um, that they don't really define. And they go on to say um, it is anti-Semitic to use symbols and images associated with classical anti-Semitism to char- characterize Israel or Israelis. Okay, but then it goes on to say drawing, uh, applying double standards by requiring of Israel behavior not expected or demanded of any other democratic nation. Boy, what does that mean? That's, 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 uh, uh, and, there's a lot of uh, interpretation exactly, possibly exactly, there. <clears throat> exactly. Exactly. Uh, I mean, we could, we could spend, you know, the rest of our hour parsing what, what they mean by double standard, what they mean, what, what behavior they're talking about, what democratic nation um, uh-huh. Is is an, is enormously problematic. Uh, so it was. We were. I think many of us who were involved in this activism um, and working on behalf of of human rights for Palestinians were heartened when the it, it was clear that the Obama administration was not going to adhere to this definition in any real or legal way. Um, and up until last month. Uh, it, it seemed like it had no legs, but the fact that Kenneth Marcus and the education department was now raising this, uh, raising this issue once again, uh, is, I think we have very real cause to be concerned. Because once you stigmatize anyone with the, the label of anti-Semitic, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's very, very difficult to, um, to shake off, uh, and defend yourself. You're, you're automatically put into, uh, uh, a category with the you know the the most heinous of uh, of genocidal uh, efforts toward the Jewish people, right? I mean, well, the word anti-Semitic uh, has all kinds. Yeah, of Rabbi, what's really interesting is with. it is the irony that while this administration is so all in for uh, the Netanyahu vision of Israel, that it's promoting and causing the uh, expansion of anti-Semitism in this country. Um, with, and I think it's pretty clear that people should be clear that the Christian fundamentalist support of Israel does not come from a benevolent uh, <laughs> view of of Jews and Israel. Right. Um, Gate, it, gateway to the rapture. Right. That's right. Right, and and and, and Adelson's right. a perfect that's example. Right. I don't think he's ever even set foot in Israel. Has Adelson ever even been there? Uh, I don't know. That's a good question. I don't know the answer to that. But, but your point about uh, Christian fundamentalism and Christian Zionism in general is a, real, is a really important one. And it's part of a larger question that, uh, that contemporary Zionists and the, the government of the state of Israel, quite frankly, are very happy to throw in with anti-Semites like, uh, like Christian Zionists or even political anti-Semites like, for instance, Stephen the Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban. Yeah. yeah, or Stephen Miller in this country, um, but I was referring also to uh, Hungary's Prime Minister Viktor mm-hmm. Orban, who is a very odious uh, white nationalist who has made very disturbing comments uh, um, that uh, align themselves with neo Nazis, and was invited to uh, 
the state of Israel. Uh, I was given a, a state visit by Netanyahu. So I think the litmus test is, do you support the state of Israel? And yeah. even the most odious anti-Semites are given a pass as long as they pass that litmus test. And that's long been the case. Well, and and let, me ask, let me ask you, Rabbi, I mean, do, you, do, you, do you support the state of Israel? Uh, when you, I say, do I support the state of Israel? I, I mean, I, I need to. You need to be more specific about what that means. I don't support well, Israel's I mean, well, of, policies toward Palestinians. Right. I don't. I don't support a regime that 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 uh, privileges Jews over non-Jews and right. gives rights to Jews that they don't give to non-Jews. Um, I don't. I don't support policies that allow any Jew anywhere in the world to become an instant citizen just by setting foot in the state, whereas um, refugees who have been dislodged from their homes are unable even to visit where their families have lived for generations. I don't support any of that. What about to the question so, of whether, you know, did, does Israel have a right to exist? You know, I think that question is a red herring. Okay. Um, I mean, it comes up a lot, so I throw that, it at you. Yeah. I mean, yeah, and I and I think so. I think the, I think it's uh, I think it's problematic to raise that question when we don't raise that about any other country in in the world. The, the, the question of whether or not states have a right to exist, nation states have a right to exist. You know, what does that what does that mean? I mean, nation states don't exist by dint of any kind of rights. They exist because they have power. Right, might makes right when it comes to nation statism. Uh, you know, does the United States? Did we lose him? Try back, uh, Reverend uh, Reverend Rosen. I'm not sure right. what happened. I don't think he goes by Reverend. Sorry, Reverend I, 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 <laughs> Rabbi Rosen. <laughs> call back if you can. I'm not sure what happened there. The call just dropped, and maybe it was on our end. Maybe it was his end. Um, Charles, you want to? Yeah, well, I, I think I'd be interested to hear, um, you know, in terms of the rabbi's work with Palestinian activists, what their hopeful solution is. And um, I, I, I agree with him that the issue of, of the existence of Israel is not in question, but but it has increasingly become a state, which is not in in the sense that we believe democracy. Should, well, I, I, I can't even use that standard because we don't have a democracy anymore. We have a tyranny of the minority. <laughs> In the and, U.S. And in Israel, essentially, they also increasingly have a tyranny of the minority, which is the, the ultra-conservative and the orthodox, um, who are now taking rights away from Israeli citizens. Yeah, sorry, sorry, sorry we lost you there, Rabbi. Uh, yeah, I'm back. Yeah, no, and I, I, was, I just logged back on just long enough to get the end of that conversation, which I agree. I think we need to move the conversation away from what nation states, quote, have rights and move toward a paradigm that looks at individual rights. Um, and do, do individuals in these countries, are, are they afforded rights by the, the powers of those nations, by the governments of those nations? And I think by that standard, um, it's, it's clear that there are some who have rights and some who, who do not. Uh, in, some who are privileged and some who do not in the state of Israel. And that's really where our focus needs to be. Well, and it's, it's going to be increasingly difficult to disenfranchise the Israeli Arabs because numerically they're going to uh, be probably the majority. Non, Non-Jews will be the majority in Israel. And it's yeah, just well, a- if you look at non-Jews right now between... Uh, the river and the sea, you know, mm-hmm. that including uh, the West Bank, Gaza, and Israel proper, uh, and the Golan Heights, are, there are more non-Jews than Jews at this point. Um, some of them live under military occupation some, and, and are not afforded equal rights. Some of them are in a complete blockade in the case of Gaza. We have two million Palestinians there. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you know, it's it's when you say it's going to be increasingly difficult. So far, Israel's been able to enact these these policies uh, with 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 impunity. You know, I mean, it, they they enjoy the the unstinting and uh, you know completely unconditional support of of this country and don't seem to be called to question. And so that's why we're returning to our initial point about anti-Semitism, when there are popular movements that are trying to raise these issues on college campuses, and they are immediately slapped down as anti-Semitic, that shows the the challenges that we're facing. So, Rabbi, we've only got about three minutes left, but I want to ask you, uh, you're probably, in my impression, a minority voice among rabbis. Do you get into much trouble with your 
your fellow rabbis for your position on, on this you know, challenging issue? You know, there are lots of rabbis who um, wouldn't invite me over to dinner. <laughs> uh, but I would say that increasingly, um, whether we're talking about rabbis or just um, younger generations of Jews who don't um, aren't uh, latching on to the same assumptions and same narratives about the state of Israel, I think those, our numbers are growing. And, um, you know, I, I, I think it's going to be increasingly more difficult to just assume automatic support for the state of Israel uh, in, in the future. We're, we're a minority, but um, I'm part of an organization, for instance, called Jewish Voice for Peace. That's one of the fastest growing organiz- Jewish organizations in the country. And I'm part of a rabbinical council that there are uh, 50 rabbis on that rabbinical council. I'm 50 rabbis. It's not on by one standard, not huge. And the other on the other hand, though, I think it's indicative of the fact that there are 50 rabbis who are able to publicly uh, voice their support for Palestinian human rights uh, and criticize the racism of the state of Israel, I think, is is significant. And, 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 and I think it's... In, sorry, in the, in the little ahead. bit of time we have left, uh, you know, some call for a two-state solution. Would that be your position, or do you have a, another idea? Uh, I... I am for a solution that affords every single individual who lives in that land uh, uh, full civil rights and citizenship and equality and allows for uh, the return or the repatriation of refugees. And whether they can, that can be managed within two states, uh, which I think is increasing, I would argue is increasingly uh, impossible to imagine, uh, or whether it's in one democratic state or some other kind of, of political uh, framework, that's yeah. what I would support. So well, again, th- I'm going back to the issue of individual rights, right. not not national rights. We've just got a little time left. Yeah. i, I got to thank you yeah. for joining us, Rabbi Rosen. Rosen, appreciate that. You'll be in Des Moines on Wednesday? Sure. I will be in Des Moines on Wednesday, uh, Wednesday evening, yes. Okay, great. Thank you. Uh, uh, where, for, where will Rabbi Rosen be? Uh, uh, we'll, uh, we'll put that information up on my website. Okay. Thanks, uh, Dr. Charles Goldman, joining us here in the studio. to the Fallon Forum, Ed Fallon, and uh, Charles Goldman here with you with our our, our climate news segment. Um, yeah, as always with uh, climate change, so much going on, and I'm not just talking about uh, Hurricane Michael, the strongest hurricane ever to hit the panhandle, and uh, where it hit, it did some pretty serious damage. Of course, they'll probably recover from that a lot quicker than uh, they recovered in Puerto Rico, because it's mainland U.S., and we actually care more. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, so, true. Yeah. So uh, the um, in Iowa, there's um, every year a report is put out by a growing number of Iowa scientists and climate faculty, faculty and researchers that, that deal with some element of climate science. 201 have signed on to the 2018 Iowa Climate Statement. And one of the components of that talks about how uh, – Buildings need to be uh, designed to withstand the changing weather that climate change is bringing. That includes, of course, hotter temperatures, um, <clears throat> more humid weather, um, more frequent uh, storms, and probably uh, the occasional uh, you know, more frequent and more prolonged drought. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, how do you design buildings to be more energy efficient, to use less uh, so – you know, that we can cut our entire energy footprint, whether it's coming from renewables or, or fossil fuels. This is a good report. And this is um, information that uh, that uh, builders and developers and city council members and mayors are taking seriously. And, of course, this comes on the uh, same day as um, we had the president on last night on 60 Minutes uh, talking to, I guess, what, Leslie Stahl, is that her name? Um, and saying that... Um, Yes, the, he believes that the weather is changing, but it'll probably go back to where it used to be. And um, based on what? Based on what? Well, scientific not based. Assessment? Well, not based on any scientific assessment, because he did say that you know you really can't trust scientists because they do have political um, inclinations, which they express through their research. Um, uh, but you know, it's, it's interesting. A pretty harsh dismissal of a very uh, yeah honorable profession. I, I agree, you know. uh, and also a, a pretty glib dismissal of what will be undoubtedly a problem for our children and their children 
uh, to a greater degree than ourselves. I think it's already a problem for us. To some degree, yeah. Yeah. But, um, you know, again and again, you ask the same question. There's a lot of money to be made in making buildings more climate resistant, making buildings more uh, conservative of the use of energy. Um, We know that it is far better to conserve electricity than it is to try to build in more generating capacity. Um, And yet we go back to the same old industries to do the same old things um, and kick the can down the road. Because I I, I believe that, you know, what's going on here is that, one, it's inconvenient for people who are presently on Earth, at least in the United States, to ever change their lifestyle. Um, I don't think Americans are sanguine about how gluttonous we are, that we use about two-thirds. We, we emit, even with the reduction, which has been achieved in, in, in carbon emissions in the United States over the last two decades, we still emit two-thirds of these emissions with a population that is nowhere near two-thirds of the world. Well, I mean, now, wait a minute. I thought China had surpassed the U.S. as the but, uh, well, largest but, emitter. Well, Not we, per capita, but overall. Right, overall, that's okay. correct. But they have a billion people. We have a third of that. So we are clearly okay. far more gluttonous than the Chinese, and the Chinese also. But of they're course, trying to catch up. They're trying to. Well, they're trying they're to catch buy, up. But they're the buying Chinese, U.S. oil. Well, they buy U.S. coal. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's it's sort of like it's sort of like what happened with this assassination of this alleged assassination by the Saudis of of the what uh, Washington Post journalist, you know, which is that the president said, "Well, we're not going to imperil." hundreds of billions of dollars of business in arms sales to the Saudis for this one person. Um, now, that's fine. I mean, at least he's, he's, he's being truthful. Yeah, I know. And, and what he's being truthful about is American complicity in being the arms merchant to the world. And those arms are being used in places like Yemen, which is a, a genocide that's being, uh, you know, uh, brought upon by the Saudis and to some degree by the Iranians. And it's the same thing with energy. Is Americans just are not willing to look hard at how yeah. much energy we use. We may, we may be forced to, you know. Well, we will. And, and, and the question becomes, what are you going to do when the climate bans in which you can grow crops yeah. are no longer where they are now? Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll see. Um, go, go, <laughs> we'll know. Well, go look at the, yeah. go look at the maps of Africa and, and see the the – you know, increase in area covered by the Sahara Desert and yeah. understand that nothing goes on forever. Right, right. <laughs> so in other climate news, uh, General Motors, um, uh, they're, you know, one of their most uh, gas-guzzling uh, vehicles, of course, is the, uh, are their pickup, well, two of their, their pickup trucks and, uh, and their SUVs. Uh, <laughs> this is almost funny, maybe, but they're going to be powering the production of those vehicles with wind, so the um, I, I I don't know how to feel about this, Charles. You know, GM wants to power all of its global facilities with 100% renewable energy by 2050. Mm-hmm. So they'll reach 20% of that goal by year end. The automaker said uh, just this past week. We want to do, we want to be known. Quote: This is what their um, their global manager of renewable energy said. Uh, that's Rob Threlkeld. Uh, said, we do want to be known as a green company. That's one of the key reasons we're doing this, as well as for price stability. I don't know. I'm having a hard time wrapping my mind around a green company that produces pickup trucks and SUVs. Well, it's, it's, it's <laughs> not the, – the, that's not all that's in their portfolio of vehicles. I know. I know. But And 30 years down the road, I think the technology of cars is going to be very different. But it, I think the more important point in that article is that the price of – Renewables at this point, energy produced by renewables is lower than that produced by pretty much everything except maybe natural gas. Hmm. And the arc of that is that that's going to continue to go down. Hmm. So renewable energy will make more economic sense than oil and gas produced energy in the future and certainly more than coal. So the claim to wanting to be a green company may be secondary to their claim that they are doing it for, quote, price stability. Well, no, price stability, that's fine. I mean, and and, and that is an example of if you let the marketplace work and stop subsidizing oil and gas, that uh, the marketplace could work in the favor of uh, what climate change 
believe yeah, and so in terms of in terms of um, you know letting the market work, um, it looks like we may be on track to subsidize a whole nother Dapple pipeline. Um, as I, I've been reading in your yeah, in that's, your various that's disturbing. Missives. Yes. Um, on the we'll talk about more. Although I more. assume what happens with the Supreme Court case on the first one will have a heavy influence on it, that. It may be why they're waiting. We'll mm-hmm. see. That's I'm trying to sort that out. But the um, okay. So in other news, we talked about the uh, we talked about prizes. Uh, here's one: the um, the uh, Royal Swedish Academy of Sciences awarded a one million dollar prize, the uh, Nobel Prize in Economics, to drumroll. Two climate scientists, William Nordhaus and Paul Romer, um, their key proposal is a tax on carbon. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Romer has studied why some economies grow faster than others, and uh, his research shows um, how governments can advance, uh, you know, renewable energy innovations um, and do it in a way that is both good for our planet and good for their economy. And uh, I, I'm, I'm glad. To, I think that's good. Uh, you know. Even as we have um, some of these, uh, you know, notable prizes going to people who are just doing the same old thing. Here we have a couple of people who are proposing a whole new direction and getting some significant recognition. That's uh, that's encouraging. And I think that came the same week that ExxonMobil gave a million dollars to an entity <laughs> that they're involved with, which is uh, putting forth a proposal of, of somewhat watered down carbon tax that they would find preferable going into the future. Yeah. The other piece of news I wanted to throw out there real quick, uh, Charles, is that the in Minnesota, the, a judge um, dismissed charges against three of the the three three of the uh, Valve Turner uh, activists who helped shut down tar sands oil uh, for most of a day, I believe, um, and uh, he threw out charges against them. Now, the this is uh, interesting. the The activists uh, Annette uh, Klapstein, Ben. Um, Ben uh, Yoldersma and uh, Emily Johnson were a little disappointed because they wanted to raise the issue of the necessity of their the the, the, the climate necessity defense, mm-hmm. which I think would have been uh, a, a great conversation. And who knows how that would have affected the trial? But anyway, um, it's a victory, but one that comes with a missed opportunity. So we'll see where that goes. But uh, that was a pretty brave and uh, and brave thing they did. They could have faced up to uh, a year in prison. So. Or more. Who knows? Anyway, um, yeah, that's it for our climate report here, folks, on the Fallon Forum. Dr. Charles Goldman with us here in the studio. Ed Fallon, wishing you a great week.